now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Book Kalu. I'm your host, Anthony. From time to time, I do like to host a fan roundtable to cover a chapter. I think it brings a little bit of extra juice, and I do like building out our community in this way. So for this John chapter, I invited folks who I've met via email, book at baldmove.com, Gerard and Melanie and Robin. And Robin had a scheduling snafu, and so I record her portion separate. So first, you'll hear my conversation with Gerard and Melanie, and then at the end of the podcast, you'll hear a separate conversation between myself and Robin. And in between, I ask old friend Stephanie Barbie Hammer about her new book and a Zoom class that she's teaching. Okay, before we get to Gerard and Melanie, I should mention again that if you're interested in being a part of the auction slash fantasy league related to House of the Dragon Season 2, we do still have a few slots open. All right, here's Melanie and Gerard. And Gerard, you, it sounds like you've got something at eight, is that right? Yeah, actually, I'm going to a Goo Goo Dolls concert. <laughs> of course. So I took today and tomorrow off. So when you said, you know, like, let's have it on the 30th, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm completely free. Yeah. But no, I, I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> very good. Very good. All right. Well, I was just going to introduce you by your first names, unless you would prefer not to be introduced by your first names. And, um, and I'm happy to promote anything that you might want to promote yeah i'm happy to use my first name it's yeah fine. fine with me and i'm not promoting anything i'm just a nerd <laughs> okay all right same <laughs> all right <laughs> fantastic although i am going to clarify that my emails are not nasty they are <laughs> impassioned right. for the audience all right well you, i'll give you an opportunity to do that okay all right so <laughs> Uh, today, a uh, very special day for me because I have two and maybe three, if Robin shows up, uh, listeners to this podcast. So this is just um, uh, fans of the book, and we're going to be talking about John's fourth POV chapter. My guests are Gerard, who sends me sweet emails every now and again, and Melanie, who sends me nasty emails every now and again. So welcome, Gerard and Melanie. Thank you. I'm Melanie, and my emails are not nasty. They are <laughs> impassioned, and I wanted to clarify that for the audience. <laughs> I, you know what? I do agree. They they are impassioned. Uh, let's yeah. Let, let's. I've got a draw. I got a drop of the dragon's blood. Okay. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. All right. 
All right. Um, Gerard, I was going to start by asking you all, do you like Jon Snow? I feel like I talk to people every now and again that would be like, eh, he's boring or I'm just not a big fan of Jon Snow. I'm, I'm curious what you think of Jon Snow generally as a character. Yeah, generally as a character, I I neither like John at this point or dislike John. I started off uh, with, with, I guess, seeing some of myself within John. I think that he has a very good sense of what's right and mm. wrong. Um, so I did gravitate towards him at first. And then, yeah, towards the end of the books, or we're not even finished yet, but towards the end of things, it just kind of got to me like he was very boring and he wasn't really pushing some of the things I thought he should be pushing. But in general, I think he's a good character. He has a good sense of what's right and wrong. And I think that he's a good leader overall. Now, Melanie, my impression is that you only like evil characters. So I'm assuming you absolutely not you hate Jon Snow. Jon Snow. <laughs> Love Jon Snow. Favorite Targaryen. <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. Very yes. good. Yes. This goes mm-hmm. back to our one of our old disputes about whether tar- whether you can actually root for a Targaryen. I think that absolutely John is I mean, sort of on. like a parade example of the Targaryen that you should be rooting for. And we have mention of Maester Aemon. <laughs> Absolute fantastic stand-up guy. <laughs> okay. Good. What is generally how do you feel about Jon Snow? I love Jon Snow. Um so when I started reading the books, he I didn't have super strong feelings about him, but uh-huh. as the story has unfolded, like to me, Jon is the core, the ice and the fire, you know? And I really enjoy his journey from being just like a broody, I guess like 14-year-old or something. Yeah. Yeah, to having the confidence to say, no, we're going to let these wildlings through. We're going to try to save them and not let them all die because that's what we used to do. Yeah. So I like him. I love him. I think that John's probably the closest thing that Martin has to sort of a classic hero's journey protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's sort of young, he's male, he's uh, you know, he he wants to do the right thing, he wants to seek wise counsel, he's good with a sword, you know, he's sort of the closest thing we have to a Luke Skywalker kind of character. And I think for a lot of people that makes him a bit boring because, you know, a lot of these other characters, they have some interesting flaw or some interesting disability or some interesting personality quirk that makes them somewhat unique. And so I think, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't begrudge someone who thought that John was a bit boring but I think that that's sort of a superficial reading of his character. So I also, Bran is one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite character. I love him. Um, but yeah, I just feel like with John, it's just like, yeah, there's a lot more there that could be there with the magic. And he's just kind of like, yeah, I don't want to mess with that. I'm just going to mm. stay on the narrow path. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Now I do have a confession. Um, and I don't know if I... What, you think he's evil? <laughs> No. Um, 
but he has the potential because he's a Targaryen. Um, True, uh, but he's he doesn't he's not blonde. My my confession is that when I first read these books, I skipped the John chapters in Clash, and I, John was just I was just so uninterested in anything that was happening north of the Wall during the my first reading of this book that. I just kind of skipped them and let the show kind of tell the story. And it wasn't until a few years later when I went back and actually did my second reading that I would actually, there was a lot there here. And I was like, Oh, I, I missed a lot by skipping these stupid chapters. So anyway, uh, I, it was clearly a bad move on my part. And I, I confess that sin and I seek forgiveness of the, the old gods and the new. Yeah. John is a vital part of being able to understand the north i think so yeah that was shouldn't have done that <laughs> mm-hmm. clearly it was a bad move here are the highlights coming up this week on bald move all new pulp and prestige this week on tuesday we'll cover the latest episode of the walking dead the ones who live on pulp and on thursday we'll catch up with the latest samurai subterfuge on fx hulu's shogun Then on our House of the Dragon feed, Anthony puts on his maester's class on Monday. Then on Thursday, Steve joins him for Electric Bookaloo as they continue their discussion of George R.R. Martin's A Clash of Kings. Find these and many of our other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Prestige in your favorite podcast app. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel, Shogun, into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun, as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read my synopsis of this chapter, and then we can jump in. As the Night's Watch ascends to the Fist of the First Men, John fails to call Ghost to heal. Finally, they arrive at the ring fort of Mossy Stones and make camp. After his duties, John hears from the old bear and learns his attentions. He means to stay at the fortification until Corn Halfhand arrives. He also hopes that Benjen Stark might see their fires from far off and come in from the cold. John visits Sam, who's tending ravens, and talks to several men at supper. That night, Ghosts returns, but refuses to come inside the Ring of Stones. 
John follows his dire wolf down the hillside and discovers a cache of dragonglass and an old warhorn buried at the base. So, Gerard, let's start with you. I'll let you decide which one you want to do first. Do you want to start with your observation or your question? Yeah, I'll start with my observation and then I'll go into my question. Okay. Um, and my observation is, I guess, kind of connected to the question in itself. But, you know, at the end of the chapter, John finds the catch of dragonglass along with the horn um, and the cloak that's been there for I guess we don't really know how long, but he tries to allude to it being recently mm. that he thinks that it's been buried there. And I'm very curious what you all think about that. And if you all think that it's been buried there recently, or if it's been a long time and kind of my observation from that is, you know, if it was left there by someone, you know, whoever it was left there by, and then it's obviously someone from the Night's Watch because they left the cloak, the Night's Watch cloak. It makes me wonder why they didn't leave a note. And maybe it was <laughs> they're going back to retrieve it at some yeah. point. Um, but also it's weird to me because it would seem like it would be a ranger, right? And I feel like rangers would have um, some sort of writing and reading skills, um, especially because when you look at some of the chapters beforehand where John is um sam are getting ready to venture beyond the wall um sam is looking at maps and he talks about how the rangers brought back these maps mm. and stuff from the mm -hmm. north and how he could organize them so it makes me think obviously there's some good detail written on those maps from rangers obviously so it's weird to me that there isn't a note there but i don't know that's i guess it's kind of two questions but one was more my observation and the question is how long do you think that stuff was Buried it's there. a really great question. There's at least three indications that it's recent. And the first is that the earth is is soft there. And it's almost like this is sort of a, a recent and almost hasty burial. You know, it's not hardened earth. And then when he pulls up the cloak and he recognizes it as a cloak of, of the Night's Watch... It's black. And if it was, if it had been there for a hundred years or even a, a year, it would have absolutely grayed, you know. But this cloak looks to be f worn recently. So yeah. I don't really know what, to, and then of course he, you know, he, he kind of, he interprets it as a, a recent burial. I don't, really know why that's significant what do you think mel um so yeah no i was gonna say not only is it not faded but he says it's good wool thick a double weave mm. damp but not rotted which yeah we're like this isn't like now clothes with synthetics and whatever they, it would be starting to rot and fall apart if it had been there for any prolonged period of time in the ground. So somebody left it with the, I, I think the intention of someone finding it. And this was sort of one of my possible questions, possibly cold hands. Mm. Because he would be a brother, have been a brother of the Night's Watch. 
I don't know where he got a new cloak. Uh, but <laughs> since Cold Hands was a brother of the Night's Watch, he would be familiar with this terrain and the maps. He's also connected in some weird way to the Weirwood net. Yeah. So he would be able to leave this without having to leave a note and know that Ghost would lead John to it. It's so interesting. All right, so Gerard, what do you think? Do you, do you feel like there is any evidence that this may be an older burial? No, I definitely agree with you all. I think that it is a recent burial, but it made me think maybe it, it could be old um, just because of the fact that everything else around it, you know, is old. The first mm -hmm. one is old. Obviously, there were battles there. Maybe they put dragon glass around there. Some was kept there somehow. But I do, I definitely agree. I think, Melanie, like you could be completely right about this, that maybe it is cold hands. My other thought is maybe that it is, you know, Benji, you know, mm -hmm. we realized you know, he did pass away. I don't know if that would be the way the book plays out, but it could be him coming back and leaving, you know, kind of a message in that same similar fashion where he knows Ghost is going to find them. But it's just weird to me that there, if it's recent, it's weird to me too that there isn't a note left. And maybe it is just the haste of that person needing to leave because they don't want to be found dead, essentially. I guess, still. yeah, I guess my initial thought was it's, you know, maybe it's Ben Jen. Ben Jen thinks, like, they're going to range north at some point, and he knows that the bear will probably go to the Fist of the First Men. And just in his haste, he's decided to bury this cache of stuff in his own you know, Night's Watch cloak. I don't know why that came to mind, but it seems like everything about this story so far is telling me that Benjen will return at some point. That we'll find out what happened to him. Otherwise, why keep talking about him over and over again? And so, and he's even mentioned in this chapter, and it made me think, well, maybe this is a Benjen burial. I think that could be the case. Yeah, the only two ideas I had were Cold Hands or Benjen, because Cold Hands would be able to do Blood Raven's favors or something. Oh, yeah, okay. Whatever that <laughs> sure, is. Sure, sure. Um, you know, th this was where they were going to be and when. Right, yeah. And be able to do that. Yeah, whoever buried these wants them to be found, it seems to me, but it feels like... a. Unless there is some, unless John gets some help from his magical pet, he's not, he's not going to find these things. So it makes me wonder, maybe this is a, a brand from the future help. Um, well, actually, that was my observation. Okay, let's let's move to your observation. Yeah, so I had noticed there are a lot of mentions of hearing the wind like mm -hmm. and hearing water and all of those things that we know become associated with the old gods mm -hmm. so it says like he's like when the wind blew he could hear the creak and groan of branches um and then this was on page 510. A thousand leaves fluttered. 
and for a moment the forest seemed a deep green sea, storm-tossed and heaving, eternal and unknowable. Hmm. Um, yeah, which is very god. Mm -hmm. Then later down on the page, they start talking about the ravens, and Sam says they hate being caged, and I think John replies, you would too if you could fly, which again brand right yeah and and yeah so there's a lot of this stuff and then there's more mentions throughout the chapter of um when he's chasing ghosts the trees stood beneath him warriors armored in bark and leaf uh awaiting the command to storm the hill he's listening to call the brook so yeah like all of this stuff just made me think brand yeah, and I guess, I'm, I mean, one of the observations that I had was that Ghost is not like a lassie stand-in, and so <laughs> um, Ghost doesn't doesn't really have an intellect. Like, Ghost wouldn't be able to reason, like, like I smell dragon glass there. I think my master should know about it. I'm going to go, you know, try to uh, get him to run down after me. I don't feel like Ghost does that or has that i feel like in order for ghost to know that this is significant he needs to have someone like bran working into him or he needs to have you know some kind of uh instruction from a blood raven or someone like that so i'm not i don't really know how to read this otherwise i just Nothing in this story has taught me that me that Ghost has his own intellect to be able to point out the significant find to to uh, to Jon Snow. So that makes me wonder: is is this a Brand thing? Is this a Blood Raven thing? Uh, this is not the first time that Ghost has done something that has been surprising to Jon. And all, whenever that happens, I do think is someone kind of guiding Jon Snow. So my my question is sort of in the same uh, area, but it's more of a question about George. Like, do you think that George originally had a different plan for Benjen Stark and now he just doesn't know what to do with him? Or... Because I'm like, how has this guy been missing for this long? <laughs> like, and we're still like, what? Like, where is he? And so, do you guys have any theories, like, about what happened to him? What you like? What you think the significance of that would be? at this point this far along in the story do you have any yeah. thoughts on this Jaron? yeah like i'm wondering that same exact thing too it's weird that he hasn't brought him back right? yet and my head goes into some really weird spaces i'm just like maybe he could pop up you know as a white in the future um you know there's all this speculation that the first whites were starks so maybe there's some connection there with him becoming a white um I don't know like and I also still think like maybe he could pop up and he is truly still alive and he's just been out there battling and like having a hard time and trying to figure it out but yeah that's kind of where my headspace goes on that so we leave Bran at the end of dance 
sort of doing his Jedi training up with Blood Raven, right? Mm-hmm. And we think Joe Jen is gone. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming Bran is going to go back south. I, maybe that's a bad assumption. But I, he might just be a tree. Yeah, he could he could just become a tree, I suppose. But if he does need to leave the I think he will leave eventually. I think uh George wants to make him king of Westeros at some point. Uh I think he's going to have to go back down south. And my headcanon is Ben Jen will show up at at sort of a just in the nick of time to save Bran from something. Uh, I don't think it, I don't think Ben Jen will show up like it he did in the show where he kind of like just helps Jon Snow and then dies or whatever. But I that is that is my guess. My guess is that the reason why we haven't heard from him in the story for so long is that kind of get the readers to forget about him so that when he does show up in Winds of Winter, it's a big surprise. Anyway, that maybe that's not what maybe that's just my hope that that's what will happen. I I do I, I absolutely do want to find. Isn't out. that what happened on the show first, and then he also came out of nowhere? He kind of on that lake. Well, he ends up. What ends up happening is they Benjamin kind of becomes a composite character with cold hands. Yeah. Uh. So um, I my my guess is that that will not happen in the books, but that he will somehow help Bran get back down south. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm fine with that. I just hope they don't do the let's go get a white for Cersei, <laughs> even though she didn't ask for I can't, one. Can't. The worst the worst gift ever given to a queen. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yep. Yes. Right. The top half of a corpse. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to note that... This is, I think this is the first time that we have a sacred space that is almost, that almost has like a magical force field. It's when ghosts refuse to come inside the stone rings, almost like it's kind of a Stonehenge sort of arrangement. And ghost is just not having it. He physically refuses to come inside the stone rings. And it makes me think that whatever magic is protecting the people inside that stone circle is keeping out whatever kind of magical beast ghost is. That that was my reading of it. How did you guys read that? I, I read it a little differently. Um, I read it more like ghost was like, Oh hell no. <laughs> And just straight up refusing to go in there because, um, like, the talking all about, like, the smell, the smell. Oh, of the that's a good and, point. Yeah, and um, that John, and once they say that, John's like, oh shit, that's why he's being such a weirdo. Yeah, they do mention the smells, like the smell of death. So maybe that's mm-hmm. keeping ghosts out. What about you, Gerard? Did you note that? Yeah, that I had that same observation, Melanie. Um, I thought the same thing. It's weird to me that he didn't want to go in there at first. And then when they started talking about the smell of everything. And then John also talks about like ghosts and spirits possibly being there. And also we know, you know, obviously there were battles there. This is the first man, you know, mm. 
ton of stuff probably happened there. So it made me really think that he's more or less worried about um, the spirits and the death and everything just along with that place. That's probably a better interpretation than my. He didn't like the smell of it. Yeah, but that also is interesting because from what we're able to observe, like, it, it reminds John of when Ghost warned him and he was able to save the old bear mm-hmm. in the last book because even though Ghost couldn't see through the door because he can't do that, um, he could feel and he was freaking out these and he warned John mm-hmm. in that way. So like, but it's interesting because we know what eventually happens to the the men of the Night's Watch who stay at the Fist, but it doesn't happen for however long. I, yeah, I don't know days, weeks. So what is happening? right then that is putting ghost on such high alert yeah the chapter itself wants to remind us about the whites that rise from the dead that attack mormont right there's a few Mm -hmm. ways number one uh it's it mentions john's burned hand in this chapter and of course that is a callback to the end of the first book and then the smell reminds like cold actually does have a smell and that sort of he 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 thinks back his memory is 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 cast back to the night when he burnt the whites and then of course there is that twin episode with ghost telling john that something is afoot which happened in castle black and it also happened at the fist of the first men here. So this chapter definitely parallels that last episode in at least three ways. And so it it feels like that's, that is not on accident. Um, Whatever is happening here has to do with the white walkers. And you could read it as well. Yeah. Because at the end of the chapter, John's going to absolutely find the weapons he needs to fight the white walkers. But it could be more, right? It, it could be like, no, there. this is actually sort of foreshadowing what is going to happen in this very place. Yeah, I definitely think it could be both. Um, something else that I wrote down as I was reading through it was just how much Mormont wants to stay at that place because of the fact that it's, you know, a stronghold yeah. and the only place right. they really can right. defend <laughs> for miles. So they're already anticipating, you know, we're going to battle here. We're going to have a fight here. This is where... Either it's going to begin and end or, you know, begin and we're just going to be done. But I did pick up on that sure. as well. Yeah, I think I, I think the foreshadowing and then also what uh, Gerard just said, it's kind of a there's a tragic twist on Mormon because Mormon is right in saying that this is a good place for fighting wildlings. Yeah, yeah. But they don't get attacked by wildlings. They get attacked by the dead. So, yeah, I mean, that's so interesting to me because I kind of feel like sometimes I read Mormont as he knows more than he's letting on. And 
yet sometimes he seems like he's acting pretty stupidly. <laughs> so I don't, I don't really know what to make of this guy. Yeah, I mean, can you ever be ready or to get attacked by a bazillion ice monsters? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> you can throw shit at people, but those things are just going to keep going. Okay. Unless you're... <laughs> Uh, we, we also have the first mention of uh, this war horn and there's a lot of fan theories around this, but the two most prominent are that, uh, maybe this is a horn that will have some kind of effect on bending the wills of, of a dragon. And I think that after this last book and dance, we know that that's probably not the case. Uh, but the other, the other thought here is that there is some sort of magical horn that's going to be able to bring down the wall. And I think that again, recently, I think most fans are has pretty much abandoned that theory as well. Uh, that this horn is just a horn. It's, it, there's nothing very significant to it at all. Um, you know, maybe it was just there to hold a bunch of dragon glass you know, arrowheads. And I, it could be that the horn does neither of those things, but it doesn't mean that it's not a magical horn. Uh, but I felt like I should probably call that out just because it, it, this chapter did cause a lot of speculation early on. Draw, do you want to go first? Cause I have feelings about magical horns. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. The uh, horns for me definitely stick out as well. I think that when, for me, the first time that it came up, my first kind of thought was, oh, this definitely has some sort of magical yeah. properties. It's yeah. with the dragon glass. Like, there has to be something with it. Um, but it does kind of seem like, like a regular horn, <laughs> you know, as time goes on and as we've read more and we see more about it. But I think that you know, at first I was totally on the dragon kick that it's going to be used to, you, you know, have someone be able to control yeah. a dragon that isn't a Targaryen, obviously. Um, and then now I'm kind of on the other side of things where I do think it is going to be brought down, uh, used to br bring down the wall. Um, and I haven't completely abandoned that idea because of the fact that I just feel like there's no reason why it would be with the rest of this sure. stuff all the rest of the dragon glass if it didn't have some magical property and i think that goes back to what we were talking about before like who left it there and it's like obviously the person that left it there knows that it, you know wanted to give it to these people for some reason they're not just leaving mm -hmm. it there as a fancy war horn for people to use you know whenever the white walkers show up or you know whenever the wildlings show up i think that there has to be something more mm -hmm. to it I don't, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, it seems significant, and yet, you know, we've met other horns in this story, and some of them don't work the way you think that they're going to work, and some of them, like, they'll kill you if you blow them, so I don't, I don't know, there seems like th th this is, uh, this could just be a magical horn, or it could be a horn, I don't know. So when I first read this, I don't think that we have heard of the Horn of Joraman yet at this no. point in the story, no. right? Okay. So when I first read this, I was like, oh, it's a horn. That's weird. Whatever. And then when we got 
uh, when I got to the part where we start talking about the Horn of Jormund, I was like, oh, shit, they don't have the Horn of Jormund. Sam has the Horn of Jormund. And I was like, oh, my God, is Sam going to fix that thing and blow it and take down the wall? Because God damn it. And then but then they introduced like I never thought that this was a dragon binding horn because it just it seems out of place for dragon stuff. Um, and but, yet we have a secret Targaryen who dif- who discovers it, right? That's true. That's true. But I don't know if we had any Valerians up there with horns I don't know when the wall went up. So, um, but then later on, at some point, Euron Greyjoy comes in, and he has a magical horn that kills people. Yeah. So now this is like the third horn that has either demonstrated magical properties or might have uh-huh. magical properties. And I'm like, okay, enough with the horns. <laughs> like, seriously, can we not solve all of this with horns? I'm over <laughs> horns and I'm over baby swapping, okay? Too much of both of them. Okay. All right. I do want it to be magical. I want, I, I, if I trust that George will make it magical in a way that we're not expecting. Uh, so like, I hope so because if Sam blows this thing in Old Town and the wall comes down, <laughs> I'm gonna be really disappointed in George. All right, okay. I have been uh, noting what uh, the the birds say around John. Mormont's bird says "old" four times. Is that significant? I have no idea. He says "corn" four times. I have no idea if that means anything at all. Uh, then he says dead five times. So I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of numerology that someone could come up with that'll explain why uh, this is actually the corn of Jormund. I, I have no idea. Um, but I also noted that uh, that the other birds say John's name as well. So it's not just Mormont's bird that does this and i'll just read this little passage here i thought this was interesting the long red tail of mormont's torch burned as bright as the moon john heard the ravens before he saw them some were calling his name the birds were not shy when it came to making noise uh so the birds that they have in these cages the the ravens that they send on messages they're also saying Jon Snow's name. So do the birds know something? Like, do, do birds you just know something about Jon? Or is this Bran talking to Jon? So that is, I actually did uh, note this passage as well, because it's shortly after the wind yeah. and the branches yeah, yeah. and then right after them being caged and then you got a bunch of ravens some of them are saying john mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah which says Brian to mm-hmm, me because mm-hmm. why if they are just totally random members of the raven population what do they care about john <laughs> i don't i don't know gerard yeah. do you have any thoughts on this yeah, I definitely think it's Bran. I think that he's trying to reach out to John in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you know the ravens aren't as equipped to be able to do that but i think he's trying to send a message to him so this would be a more evidence that maybe bran is trying to get john to find the cache of dragon glass you think i think so using the birds using ghost yeah because we also know that not only does bran is able to warg into summer but the direwolves themselves have connections to each other and they can like when we have wolf dreams through the perspective of the stark children they are they're like he could feel his Mm -hmm. brother Mm mm-hmm and like they can all feel that lady is missing so it's possible that bran wouldn't even have to work into ghost right but he would be able to through summer communicate some feeling or something that's interesting notable introductions in this chapter we hear about the milk water river for the first time um we hear about very specific instructions on how mormont likes his Hot spiced wine. I thought that was interesting. The George classic. <laughs> the uh, the the giant stare and the skirling pass we hear for the first time. Notable departures. Now I said in a previous chapter that this is the last time we actually see the comet, but in this chapter, John sees Mormont's torch, which is the the name the whites the, the Night's Watch give to the comet. And so I need to retract my falsehood that I made in a previous podcast. And then notable differences with the show. The dragon glass is not found uh, in the way that it is in this chapter. I think it's just like Sam is like digging a, a hole to shit in or something. Is Do I do I remember that right? Yeah, it's like Sam, Gren, and Dolores yeah. Ed spend like, two episodes digging latrine pits and they just <laughs> happen to find find yeah. the dragon clip. Yeah. I, I get that the double D's wanted to try to remove as much magic as possible from the show. But that's that's just a really unfortunate way to find something that's really significant. Yeah. Was there anything else, uh Melanie or Gerard, that you wanted to say about this chapter? No, I don't think so. I got my feelings about magic horns in. <laughs> okay, good. So. You're done. Melanie's done with with magic horns. Mm-hmm. I'm over and it. And Gerard's got to zip off to a Goo Goo Dolls concert. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Have fun. Rick, how you doing, buddy? You... You don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do you even know what it's like out there? No, not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train. That, that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right? Um, actually, she kind of left them to be raised by... Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. All right, well, Rick is getting ready. Aaron and I are, too. We're preparing to once again recommission the Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, the ones who live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, 
and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows, maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts. Stephanie, I'm excited for your new book. I'm imagining that it is uh, Puppet Turners adjacent. Would that be correct? That is absolutely correct. It is Puppet Turners adjacent. So first, let's talk about Puppet Turners, which, of course, people can can buy wherever they buy books. How would you describe that book? Sure. That's a magical realist novel told from four different points of view about four outsiders who are all drawn to a strange New England town that is undergoing the Great Recession, Uh but that also has conceals a almost forgotten history of a hidden religion that is a variation on the Anabaptists and Mm -hmm. Shinto. Yeah. I and I loved, you know, of course, you you gave away the magical realism part of it already. And I knew that going in, but I just loved I just love those parts of your book so much. Oh yeah, I'm glad. It's so fun to work with magical realism. It's 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 a wonderful set of tools in a in the writer's toolbox that I find just incredibly empowering and exciting to use. So what's the new book or the new novella called? The new novella, and a novella is of course a short novel, is called Journey to Melveilleur City. And it is indeed a journey that takes place on a train. Okay. And are any of the characters and puppet turners in this, or can you reveal that? I can reveal that. And I think it's important to tell your listeners that while Journey to Merveilleux City is a kind of sequel, it's absolutely a freestanding book also. So if you don't want to bother with book number one, you can just roll right into this shorter uh, action-packed novel, which features... A one of the characters from the Puppet Turners, and her name is Allison, and she is back. Good, fantastic. With an array of other characters, and okay. I can read a little. I just tell you, give a little description blurb of the book so that your listeners know what it's about. Shall I do that? I would love to. Yeah. Great. Okay, so here goes. Someone goes missing on a vintage train to Quebec, or do they? A bagpipe-playing, nearly-credentialed teacher from San Dimas, California, teams with an octopus-loving, acid-dropping college washout from New York City, that's Allison, to search a train for a man with many enemies, but who may exist only in their imaginations. Everyone they meet is a suspect, the cheaply-suited accountants, a Tiffany Trump look-alike, an evangelical cowboy rodeo star, (laughs) and the secret professor-student lovers who fancy themselves as poets. What about the Russian refugee in the fancy train compartment? Or the travel vlogger from Chongqing, China, who seems to be present whenever there is trouble? Oh, you're bringing in some of your travels from China. Uh-huh. Here comes China. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. No worries. Or the all-too-friendly ex-congressperson whose fidelity to truth seems stolen from today's headlines. Is anything as it seems? 
or the romance that seems to be bubbling between these two main characters. Nothing is certain, but everything is on the line on the magically real journey to Merveilleux City. And this is coming out in November with Picture Show Press. And, of course, Picture Show Press has its own website. And uh, But I'm imagining that you could buy this book wherever you buy books, right? You can. You can buy it on Amazon. You can order it from your favorite bookshop. I originally wanted to ask you about this class that you're going to be teaching and because I was actually thinking about taking it. But I wonder if some of my listeners might be interested in a class like this. What is the class called? And what are some of the main goals of the class? Great. Yeah, the class has a great title. And I actually took this idea of how to name the class from a wonderful poet and writing teacher whose name is Shankar Narayan. And I want to send a shout out to him. He teaches at Hugo House, as do I. And he crafts these wonderful titles for his classes that are drawn from one of the works that he's talking about. Hmm. And so I've done something similar. So the title of my class is The Doors Came as a Release. Oh, okay. That title for the class is drawn from a sentence in an incredible novel called Exit West, which is a magical realist novel by Mozin Hamid. And it's a beautiful, beautiful book based on a very simple magical realist premise. And then the whole world opens up from there. So... I'm offering a class that is a magical realism intensive. It goes on for eight weeks. It starts October 12th, and it meets on Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific. And so it'll people meet, can do uh, this from anywhere. Absolutely. And the place to go is to hugohouse.org for more information. And I love sharing these ideas connected to magical realism because I think a lot of early writers and late writers are intimidated by how to make a story work or even how sometimes how to get started. Mm. And magical realism, because it's operating outside of, of the realm of logic, is able to kickstart stories and, in my opinion, also keep stories going. You can't see me gesticulating and pointing my fingers in various (laughs) directions. So your listeners will have to imagine that happening. Magical realism is able to open up a story and keep it going in surprising and exciting ways. And this this class would appeal to people who either would like to tinker with writing or are already writers or they just want to learn about the genre? That's a great question. I think that this class works best for people who've done a little bit of writing. Uh-huh. I will share that I think magical realism is a particularly potent toolbox for poets. Okay. And for people who have love writing, love language, but just aren't quite sure how to put a story together. I think it can also be very helpful for memoirists who are thinking, oh, I'd maybe like to try to write fiction, but I don't know exactly how to lie. How do I lie? I'm not quite sure how to do that. Magical realism can help you do that. 
<laughs> okay, w one more time, the website for the class. It's hugohouse.org, and the class is The Doors Came as a Release, but you can also just look for my name at the Hugo House website, and you'll find the class. And my last name is Hammer, which is easy to spell and find. And again, the name of your novella. My novella is Journey to Merveilleux City. Okay, fantastic. And it's really funny and really suspenseful, and I hope your listeners will check it out. I can't wait to read it. By the way, you would have been great as part of the group. I am so <laughs> I sorry. Wish, I wish we could have. Re I, I wish we could have redone this, but um, we'll do this again. We'll do it another time. I hope so. Um, and Anthony, I, I was so sad. Like <laughs> I cried. I, oh, I went to my sad. husband. No, because it's not your fault. Like today <laughs> you helped me. You know, I knew that I had a deficiency. And so I said, do you mean 1 p.m. Pacific? And you were like, no, that's noon. I've I've been <laughs> I've been bamboozled many times by time zones. So I understand. All right. So you, okay, you so uh, I was John, curious about your observations about this chapter. Yes. So that John is extremely observant. When they get there, he notices like everything. He notices things that Mormont doesn't, that he feels that Mormont isn't thinking about. Like, it doesn't mean that he wasn't addressing it, like how their water is outside of mm. the ring wall and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And he's already thinking like a leader and looking for weaknesses. Like when Ghost is out in the woods and he's like, we have no idea what's under those trees at all. There could be the enemy right there and we wouldn't know. Yeah. And I feel like that is something that, I mean, in this chapter, Mormont says, Eamon thinks that you're clever. Mm-hmm. And that's and, all it takes for John to pick it up. Yeah. I And I think that, that there is something there. There is something about even the young child, John, that we meet in book one. Yeah. He's not dumb. He not may sort of be myopic because of his trauma or he may like, he it may just be sort of like teenage angst or whatever. Well, yeah. But he's not dumb. And I think sometimes I think he can come across in ways that are Ned-like. Mm -hmm. And I think people read that as, well, he's just as dumb as Ned is. And Ned, and it's interesting because Rob and John are both a lot like Ned and they act like him in different mm. ways yeah. um, and similar ways. But it's like the difference in the choices they make, it, to me, it comes down to like being the privilege of being a first son of a Lord to being a bastard son of a Lord, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and especially one who the uh, stepmother is wicked and doesn't like him. Not that I, not that <laughs> he I does have a wicked stepmother. He has trope, a wicked he? stepmother. She right. hates him. <laughs> and, and like, and I don't, I don't hate Catelyn for that. Like, I mean, <laughs> I feel really bad for her Yeah, for that because like, I love babies. Like, and I can't imagine hating a baby. That doesn't have that problem. She just see she could take or leave babies. <laughs> yeah. Well, I imagine it has to do with like, you know, the birth rates down there and the survival. You know, you have to be <laughs> maybe, more pragmatic maybe so. Back then. Maybe so. 
So in, in terms of John's powers of observation, one of the things he notices is that Ghost is acting funny. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that Ghost is acting acting funny is that he won't come in the ringed fort. Yeah. And I'm curious, I asked the other two folks what they thought about it. What What do you think is going on there? I don't read too much into that other than it's ooh magic is happening and it's and everything's weird like mm. to me to me like that's like uh dressing see that's interesting i the the, the other two uh Gerard and Melanie they were suggesting that it was that it's this place smells like death and so ghost doesn't want to come in because of the 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 yeah, scent of it and that i makes thought sense. yeah i mean it does make sense my initial thought was there's some kind of force field that keeps out magic beasts and ghost is a magic beast see that is more like what i think okay it's just uh that's my theory i'm more aligned with you when it comes to down to like what i think is the meaning behind it it's just i don't think it has any bearing on the story yeah you know it's just there to build atmosphere yeah maybe maybe that's maybe that's it i i just find more um interesting is like the interactions with people and i mean that's that's my wheelhouse is like just relationships of like all kinds so the other thing you said in your email that i was kind of intrigued about was sort of the question of who gets a POV chapter in these mm-hmm. books. And y- your suggestion was that it would be interesting to get one from Rob. No, that's not. No. Actually All right. What I, I, was I wanted to talk about why he doesn't have one. Okay. I um And, and I actually, before I missed yesterday's recording, I had not um, looked up what Martin has said about it. Because, you know, I'd read that like, you know, Littlefinger or maybe you mentioned it on the podcast um, that Littlefinger didn't get a POV chapter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Varys and Littlefinger would reveal too much. Right. You can't get in their brain because it wouldn't make any sense for them to not be thinking about the machinations that Mm -hmm. were going on. But um, I believe that with Rob, it's the other way around, that there's not that much going on when it (laughs) pertains to what's happening. (laughs) And but when I read what Martin said is that he didn't do that with any of the kings, which um, because like he his reasoning that he gives is that it's more like um, because he wanted to like, you know, show it from the outside. But the thing is, and this is comes down to John being observant, is that the more privilege a person gets, the less observant we have to be about our outside surroundings. Mm. That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. You're right. None of the sort of five kings. Worry about that. Yeah, they all have people sort of that they lean on. But, I mean, we do have (laughs) Danny, right? We do have Danny, but Danny does not have a lot of privilege at the beginning of the story. Yeah, well, I mean, she's it's, in a it's very be a while before she hit. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a while. Story, and well, when I got this theory, I looked up like everybody's first POV chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, Game of Thrones, every Stark has a chapter except for Rob 
in Britain because he's a baby. Right. <laughs> and um, I also, I always think of Rickon as Ricky, Ricky Walnuts because of Steve. <laughs> sure. <yeah>. Like, <laughs> I hear that in my head whenever I think of him. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can tell him he lives in my brain now. Uh, I <laughs> um, love that. Anyway, so, but Rob is the only, like, person who could have one. But, like, when you look at the other members of the, of the everybody who has a POV chapter, Ned is a second son. So he does have a little bit less privilege than Brandon did. Mm-hmm. So he did have that time where he wasn't the one who was, like being groomed for power and he got like less attention and like things like that and the same with bran bran's his second son and then of course you know he falls and then is disabled and so then he has another degree of privilege that is removed and Tyrion, of course is obvious and then john's a bastard then the next one's like theon he he's still from his really privileged high horse in mm. his first POV chapter, yeah. but he comes down really fast. Yeah, he does. And it's because he has all these high ideals of himself. You know, wouldn't it be horrible to have a Joffrey POV? Oh God. No. <laughs> Just be, uh-uh. It'd be a nightmare. <laughs> the worst part is that there are people out there who would love it. And that's the part that bothers me. <laughs> but you know, speaking of Cersei, her first POV chapter is after Tywin gets killed. Oh, that's true. I hadn't thought about that. And Brienne's first POV chapter is after she gets to King's Landing and finds out that Arya and Sansa are both gone. So she can't even protect the girls. Like, that's what she was going So for. it could be, I mean, if we're going to create a rule, we Martin doesn't like to create a POV for a character unless they have a legitimate life crisis to deal with. Well, I mean, I just think it's like that's when they have to start paying more attention to what's going on and huh. like make better choices. Huh. Get yeah. more interesting. I Robin, mean, at- thank you so much for joining me. Let's do it again sometime. I would honestly love to, especially if you want me to talk about Sansa. I could talk about her all day. Yeah, long. yeah everyone, everyone's like, yeah, in on Sansa these days because she's like, great. She's she's are... really the hero, in my opinion, mm-hmm. of the entire yeah, series. Yeah, well, I hear that a lot. <laughs> <laughs>